from Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week at the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. On this week's edition, how to solve the problem of global plastic pollution, the future of RE100, why Salesforce is focusing on climate issues, and a taste of the action here in San Francisco. It's Summit in the City, this week on 350. It's September 14th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings, Joel. It's, I uh, wish you were here having a wonderful time and all that. It's a um, pretty interesting week here in the city by the bay. Uh, it seems like it's just this nonstop, many, many, many <laughs> ring circus. It's hard to, a little <laughs> hard to explain. And are you in the center center ring or? <laughs> oh, not, not right now, but um, there's, I've been hopping from ring to ring and yeah. it, it, it's pretty interesting. And, and just to uh, let the audience in on, on what's going on. This is, we're recording this on Wednesday. Now <gasps> there's been stuff going on all week, uh, all, since you know Monday, really Tuesday, and today, Wednesday. The actual uh, summit begins on Thursday and Friday. Um, or is, is on Thursday and Friday. And so uh, we're recording this before the summit itself has taken place. So we're going to be having a lot uh, more content from the summit on next week's podcast. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, oh my God, it's just sort of <laughs> funny. There are, you know, there's 300 or 350, nobody knows the exact number uh, of affiliate events taking place in the city. And that's not including just a lot of receptions, cocktail parties and whatever. I'm, I'm, um, uh, speaking at three of them or actually hosting three of them, one of which isn't even listed on the official uh, thing. So uh, nobody really knows how many things are going on. But uh, at any given moment, starting Tuesday through Friday, you could be doing um, any of 10 different things. Oh, and by the way, there's the big conference itself, which I, you know, will have been, by the time you're listening to this, we'll have spent some time in. So while you've been running around in San Francisco, I've been lurking from the East Coast because not all of us can be there, unfortunately. Um, and one of the more intriguing events that I, I uh, lurked on on Tuesday evening was the Super Pollutant Day. How's that for a great name, Joel? And I'll bet you well, want to know what uh, that means, I right? <laughs> I do. I have no idea. I've been in this field a long time, and I've never really heard that term. So uh, here's the thing, is when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions, right, um, it's not just carbon dioxide. There's a lot of other things that um, we're concerned about, such as uh, methane and black carbon, a.k.a. soot, um, HFCs, so hydrofluorocarbons, and th these these gases are what we're now calling super pollutant, right? So um, at least some, some people are using that term. And I think it's a great uh, way of, of um, casting more attention on this. But the bottom line is that these gases are not necessarily, they don't stay in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide, but they are absolutely forcing um, temperature increases that are, are far greater than carbon dioxide and in the short amount of time that they live. So we talk about methane as a, as a problem because of the wellheads uh, for fracking and natural gas operations around the country. So we, we know it's, 
kind of bubbling up as an issue. Um, but the, the, the sort of theme that's emerging from the conference this week is that, okay, um, we, we can't take our eyes off the CO2 challenge, but we need to more quickly address these other things um, in order to, frankly, in order to buy more time um, and sort of stop things as, as we push forward on the other fronts. So that's my life, <laughs> or at least at this moment. You're working on, you're, you're, you're doing three different events there. So tell me a little bit more about what it is that you've got going on. Well, you know, I I'm, I'm always love sort of moderating, hosting, uh, facilitating events, and uh, it seems to be what I've what I'm tapped a lot to do. It's always fun for me, and it's and I I really get to cover a range of topics within that, and that's exactly what's happening this week. So Wednesday, uh, hosting for Carbon 180, a f- organization formerly known as the uh, Center for Carbon Removal. A roundtable discussion on carbon removal and, and the new carbon economy um, with a bunch of companies uh, that are starting to look at that and, and do things around that. A Thursday, uh, a session on building energy efficiency, an old topic perhaps, but one that keeps needing to be revisited. And, and actually, that's sort of the discussion that, that we're going to be having, um, or we will have had by the time you've heard this. Uh, this is uh, World Resources Institute, Johnson Controls, and some others organizing about why we're, you know, what will it take to really not have the same conversation about en- building energy efficiency being the, you know, the stepchild of of of, of climate uh, solutions. That it really is still, after all these years, the low hanging fruit and all of that. Um, so talking about that, and then Friday a session on aviation and climate solutions uh, sponsored by United Airlines and uh, Alaska Air and San Francisco International, um, about 200 plus people sort of from across the industry looking at at uh, sustainable fuels and sort of the future of aviation and how that uh, becomes part of climate solution because that wasn't part of the main event and they, they and so many of so many people are speaking at, at the main event, and yet there's so many topics that uh, aren't, aren't dis, uh, discussed. So I think that's going to be um, a nice, diverse group of sessions that I will have covered. And, one, and I want to direct the, uh, the listeners to some of our coverage. We will have some up um, as you're listening to this, including... Um, if you're not there, there, you can still benefit from all the reports and data that have been released this week around um, the Global Climate Action Summit. Um, I've got a piece up today. Lots of different statistics um, and, and, and data points for you to learn from. And t- two of the ones that jump, jumped out at me um, in this story were uh, the following. Number one is just the, the focus on lobbying, right? So we Another theme that I'm hearing already on the events that I've ca- captured, if you will, on the live stream is the the need for companies to stop double speaking, right? So if, it's great, and there's all sorts of absolutely amazing, phenomenal, creative commitments happening this week. However, in the in the background, um, you know, you're still members of industry associations that are actively lobbying against some of the very things that you're trying to, to move forward from. So there's uh, some, some interesting stats out from Influence Map um, out of the UK, looking at you know, who's, who's really pushing forward and helping influence policy that will get us moving in the right direction. Another report in the, in the research uh, roundup that we've done uh, that you should all look at is something from the Climate Leadership Council. 
Now, if you haven't heard of them, they're a bipartisan group of pretty crazy and amazingly influential uh, policymakers. Not they're not crazy, but the list of names is crazy amazing. Um, the people that are behind this include former Secretary of State George Shultz, um, former Walmart Chairman Rob Walton, as well as uh, uh, Treasury Secretary James Baker, and uh, you know a, a cast of characters that you will all know. Um, Janet Yellen, the, the former Federal Reserve chairman, chairwoman, and uh, Christine Todd Whitman, um, my former governor and, and former EPA administrator under George Bush. Now, what is this group doing? If you haven't heard of them, they have come together, a very respected bipartisan group of policymakers, business leaders, to support what's called the uh, Schultz-Baker plan. I already mentioned who authored it earlier, uh, a moment ago, by, by men mentioning who they were, but... Um, but George Schultz and, and James Baker have proposed this idea to set a price on carbon, right? So this is, this is one of the more interesting proposals that's come out. The idea is that it should be a sliding scale at the federal level, and it should go back to American families, starting with at $40 per metric ton. Um, and they've got some pretty compelling data suggesting that this action, which it would be easier to support financially, if you will, like businesses would be able to plan around it and so forth. Um, they think that this could be, be even more impactful than, than the regulations in place right now. So, of course, the ones that are proposed and, and probably, well, at least under this current administration, won't see the light of day. So, again, I, I encourage you to take a look at that roundup. There's some pretty compelling data in there for you to make your own case um, with your organization and for you to do some planning around so before we step off this topic of GCAS, the Global Climate Action Summit, uh, we ha have a number of stories up on GreenBiz. We'll have some more early next week, uh, some roundups of the commitments made by companies and cities, a uh, roundup of a bunch of the reports and other research that were uh, released uh, here this week in San Francisco. And, and I also commend the uh, hashtag, uh, if you can track that, for those of you who are on the Twitter, uh, it's GCAS2018, GCAS2018. Um, it's really quite, uh, quite rich, and it's been going on since well uh, last week and, and now this week. It's probably the best way to see everything that's happening, because people are live tweeting uh, lots of things. And if you have the time and inclination and patience to, to peruse that, um, that's a good thing to do. So that's some sounds coming out of the Climate Music Project. They created something called Play for the Planet. Now this is a little sound stage uh, set up uh, by the San Francisco Public Library uh, with a couple of keyboards and guitars, camera crew, a backdrop, uh, for people to come by and to artistically uh, and musically express what they want the future to sound like and what they think the future will sound like. taste of what's going on this week in San Francisco. So Joel, you were very busy this week. <laughs> you, uh, and I'm laughing because uh, I'm in awe, actually. 
um, you've published a, a great series on plastics. Um, and, and just for, by way of background, and I don't think it's a secret to anyone listening that, that the sort of issue of how we deal with plastics um, in every form, from packaging to objects used in hospitals and, and, and so forth. I mean, just that the, we're surrounded by it. And you have been interviewing individuals and organizations and companies about this issue for weeks and if not months. Um, and you've, you've finally got a couple of features out on this this week. And I, I just wanted to, first of all, say, wow, because I really learned a lot myself. But um, what inspired you to take a look at this, if you will, global war we, we've started now on plastics? Yeah, so I've been working on this, thinking about it for much of the summer. And, you know, the, the plastic story is an old one. It goes back as far as the birth of the modern environmental movement. But over the past uh, year, really less than a year, it's really come to the fore and, uh, you know, straws, you know, banning straws and banning other single-use plastics that all these companies and cities and others are doing. And I wanted to step back from those headlines and really take stock of how we got here um, and where we are and um, a little bit about where we might be going, although there's more to come on that. So I think part of this is I just really wanted to get the perspective. I think a lot of others needed to as well. So I talked to some of the environmental groups around the world in, in, the, in North America, in Europe, in Asia, uh, who, are, who are working on this, the activists who are, uh, you know, trying to stop the flow of plastic, particularly in the marine environment, but also you know, just in, on land, uh, working on these, you know, these sachets, these little packets that are very common in the developing world uh, because uh, enabling people to buy things like shampoo and toothpaste and cleaning products uh, in small doses because that's what they can afford. So it's really a matter of, of looking at that. So a two-part series, one is just sort of the history, uh, sort of where we, you know, how we, where this came from and some of the issues, because there's the, the toxics issues, there's the waste issues of the impacts uh, on land and ocean pollution, there's the public health issues, um, and it, it's, it's pretty complex. So I sort of wanted to create a baseline, and what was sort of astonishing to me uh, and one of the reasons I did this is that I couldn't find that story out there. So I'm, I, I think one of one of our our colleagues uh, mentioned to me after the pieces came out said, "We're going to be pointing to this piece for a long time because it's just sort of a great baseline uh, story of 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 sort of what's going on out there." So part one is sort of taking stock of sort of how we got to this present moment and a little bit of this what this present moment is about. And, and part two is a little bit more about in the company side. And so um, I want to play a couple of clips from some of the interviews that I did. Uh, one of the interesting people I talked to is a guy called um, John Hosevar, who's the uh, Oceans Campaign Director for Greenpeace USA. And um, he's been, you know, as Greenpeace does, uh, you know, protesting and doing doing actions, but also what a lot of people don't necessarily see in Greenpeace is working proactively and and constructively with companies to help them figure this stuff out. So I asked John, sort of, what's Greenpeace's ask of companies when it comes to plastic, and he actually had a pretty good answer. So here, here it is. We want companies to phase out single-use plastic. So step one: what is your plastic footprint? Most companies don't know that, so 
that's a starting point. Then set ambitious targets for reducing your plastic footprint. That can be overwhelming. So start with the most toxic and the least recyclable types of plastic. In this country right now, you know, the plastics that are threes, fours, fives, sixes, and sevens may go in recycling bins, but they're not usually being recycled. We want companies to create policies that will help guide their decisions. So if you're a supermarket, a policy that, you know, helps guide decisions about plastic packaging, about the kinds of products and suppliers that you work with that are going to help you reach an ambitious reduction target. We love for these companies to start talking to their customers about why they're making these changes and, um, you know, be part of the solution and fuel the culture change that's already happening, moving us away from single-use plastic and I think single-use in general. That's a fair bit to, to start with. I guess another part of it is, you know, we're we're really not pushing for people to increase the recyclability so much as to rethink how they deliver their products. And there are just too many of us for single use in many cases to really be all that viable. So we'd like companies to invest in innovation and new delivery mechanisms for their products focusing on reuse instead of throwaway. I guess maybe one more point on that. It's in nobody's interest for a company to be surprised about what Greenpeace thinks of their new policy. So I'm happy to share with any company that is thinking about developing a new policy or making a new commitment, the kinds of criteria that we use to assess those new policies. One of the companies that John Hosevar likes is a company called Aramark. Not everybody knows them. They're a $14 billion food service company based in Philadelphia. They run the food service operations in schools and universities and hospitals and corporate cafeterias, um, correctional institutions, uh, stadiums and arenas, lots of different places uh, in, I think, 19 countries. They serve 2 billion meals a year. Uh, in July, Aramark committed to significantly reduce single-use disposable plastics across its operations by 2022, in other words, in the next four years. And they said the initiative was part of a holistic strategy to address single-use plastics overall. So I asked John Hosevar from Greenpeace, why did you pick this one? Why did you like this? And part of the answer is that uh, Greenpeace helped uh, Aramark come up with this. Uh, it turns out Greenpeace had been working with Aramark on sustainable seafood. And when, when they decided to take on plastics, they went back to Greenpeace and said, can you help? He said, it's not just about straws. It's a comprehensive approach. And that's the, what we want to be seeing from business right now. So I talked with Kathy Cacciola, who's Aramark's Senior Director of Environmental Sustainability, why the company took this holistic view, why they went further than most companies are going. And here's what she had to say. Sure, the conversations we've had with different organizations who work on plastic ocean waste, we heard time and time again that plastic straws were an important issue and they were the most visible, but they were not necessarily the most impactful. And that really resonated with us in looking at the scope of single-use plastics that we use across our operations. So we took this as an opportunity to say, okay, let's start with phasing out the most visible category. I like to say sort of the, the tip of the proverbial plastic iceberg, but recognize that there are so many more 
issues associated with single-use plastics that we will need to get a handle on. And it just made sense for us to take a holistic strategy and approach at the outset rather than incrementally announce one aspect and then essentially find ourselves on our heels trying to figure out what the next step would be in the overall process. So we we basically have uh, laid out a roadmap for ourselves around reducing plastic straws and stirs, identifying other categories, looking at increasing our suite of reusable product offerings, partnering with our suppliers and national brand partners to, to decrease waste, and of course, engaging consumers and clients to help ensure that everybody's making informed decisions along the way. And that multi-pronged strategy we felt was more appropriate for where we wanted to be now and gave us a runway for where we can be in the future. So you've made a three or four year commitment here where you're not entirely sure how to pull some of it off. Um, Talk about that a little bit. You know, I feel like that's the case for many organizations, right? Making bold environmental or broader social and sustainability commitments. Sometimes you have a sense of what the runway is, but you need to begin turning the wheels in order to figure out what the actual steps are to bring it to to bear. And that was part of the reason why in our announcement, we also clearly indicated the importance of partnering with consumers as well as suppliers and, and different partners of ours to make sure that this is an effort that multiple stakeholders are at the table to, to make the change. Because similar to many other waste issues, this isn't just one organization that can make a change and, and make it happen. But we're excited about it. I mean, we're this is, a, I think, an important issue to be working on. It's a great challenge for us to have at hand. I think the key for us will be pacing the steps accordingly so that we can get each piece right and, frankly, not try to bite off the whole iceberg with one fell swoop. So the phasing out plastic straws and stirs starts in September, which is (laughs) very soon. So we've been focusing on that piece of really rolling out, making sure that our operations know what to do, making sure that our consumers have a sense of why we're doing this, why it's important to Aramark to reduce waste, and that we know that it's important to our consumers as well. And then we're taking a look at the reusable suite and then from there pacing out the other areas of prioritizing additional categories. So it, it, is, a, it is a lot to, to look at from the big picture, but we feel good about the commitment that we as Airmark have made and feel like if we pace it correctly, we'll be able to make the substantive change that we've announced. So, Joel, I mean, part one is a great historical perspective on how we got to this place and, and the very complex social and um, environmental issues that are involved on both sides of the equation. And what I love about both of these stories, part two is the, is the story you just mentioned with where we talk about some of the early developing solutions. But the engagement on uh, especially the first one has been um, incredible. And and a lot of them are saying, well, where, where what are the solutions? How do we get there? And so I think that begs the question, um, what, what do you see happening next? Like, what, what is it that we really need to focus on as a corporate community? And um, how can we get to this better place? Well, in terms of what, what's happening next, uh, in a word, lots. Uh, there's uh, just so many initiatives that are happening, not just at the company level, but at the collaborative uh, level. We're going to be seeing a number of, of new collaborations taking place. I wrote about one a month or so ago uh, called Circulate Capital, a spin out of the closed loop partners, uh, putting together some money from some big corporates to help invest in the infrastructure that can decrease plastic uh, leakage, as they like to call it, into waterways and ocean uh, in uh, Asia. 
But we're going to be seeing a number of initiatives. Some of them are going to be coming out at the Save Our Oceans conference, which is in uh, Bali, I think, at the end of October, early November. Um, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development is probably going to be having some new announcements of some big companies investing also in Asian re recycling. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation is going to launch a major initiative to unite businesses and governments around a common vision and to make some ambitious commitments towards a circular economy for plastics. And uh, it, I know next year in Davos in January at the World Economic Forum, there's going to be a, a big announcement. Some of these things um, I've been told a little bit about, don't have all the details and I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but there is a lot more to come. And, and one of the other things that I'm planning to do and, and we're planning to do at GreenBiz is to cover more of the solutions. There's a, a bunch of new technologies that are coming out. I wrote about it a little bit in the uh, second article to recycle sachets, which are these, again, these little packets, uh, which are, are these laminates of multi-materials and they're not recyclable, but there's a uh, Unilever has been working on that. We're going to be seeing a lot of developments like that. And I feel very hopeful that somehow this problem that's been festering for 50 years now is going to go, uh, start to get addressed at the scale, scope, and speed that's needed. Led by the Climate Group in partnership with CDP, the RE100 initiative represents a diverse group of companies that all have a common vision, an aspiration to power their operations with 100% renewable energy. The RE100 members collectively drive more than $275 trillion in revenue and operate in a wide range of sectors, from information technology to automobile manufacturing. Joining us to provide an update on the four-year-old campaign is Sam Kimmins, the head of RE100 for the Climate Group. Sam, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Heather. I'm very pleased to be here. <laughs> so, Sam, first, first of all, can you give us a, a brief progress report? How many companies are part of the RE100 initiative today? So, uh, 144 companies have now committed to sourcing 100% of their electricity from renewable sources. Now, this commitment covers their entire global operation, and uh, it has been made by a diverse range of companies, from uh, you know, the, the large IT companies like Google and Facebook, through to manufacturing, car manufacturers such as General Motors, and cement companies such as Dalmia Cement. Altogether, those, uh, those the equivalent uh, electricity demand is that of Poland, or around 50% of California's annual electricity demand. So this has really grown since we, we started the, uh, the RE100 back in 2014. Yeah. So where do you see the program expanding next? Well, we're continuing to grow, and this week we welcomed Sony Corporation, the Royal Bank of Scotland, McKinsey & Co., and WeWork. Uh, this year, we welcomed our first Taiwanese member, um, TCI, and uh, we've been joined by 11 Japanese companies. So the program really is expanding, and this is for two reasons. First of all, it's the right thing to do. Companies recognize that renewable electricity is the right thing for their companies. It's also the right thing uh, from a business point of view. 
with the rapidly declining cost of renewable electricity, it's no longer just a CSR consideration, it's a business con consideration. Now that we've, you know, we've reached a fairly sizable um, uh, number of companies, and this is starting to have influence around the world. Uh, it's starting to really open, open doors and uh, open the eyes of governments to uh, the fact that corporate sourcing is uh, a growing trend. It's a, a growing movement. And companies are really serious about buying their electricity from renewable sources and are asking their governments to allow them to do this. You know, I'm curious how... How many of the members have actually reached their goal? Has any, have, has any company actually hit that mark yet? Yep. So to date, 27 of our members have achieved 100% renewable electricity. And this, uh, this includes the you know, real industry giants um, such as Google. Facebook will be achieving 100% this year. And these are significant amounts of uh, renewable electricity um, bought through uh, a range of, of, of methods through power purchase agreements, through on-site uh, supply and through certificates. Yeah, yeah, a lot of uh, different different strategies. That it's fascinating to me to follow, follow all those uh, different methods and ideas and creativity. Um, and you have a great white paper out right now uh, talking about the leadership and, and that provides you know, some examples, a great example. So I'll, I'll point people to your website for that. As far as this discussion goes, you know, there are many different ways in which RE100 pledge companies are demonstrating their leadership. And one thing that really fascinates me, um, uh, I've seen a strategy that uh, companies like Apple, Walmart, Ikea are trying to engage their supply chains more closely um, to help their partners embrace the RE100 or at least clean energy, generally speaking. So I'm curious, which initiatives are you watching most closely um, that, that sort of represent that scaling of the movement, if you will? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount of innovation going on, both in terms of how companies are buying renewables, but also how they're growing the movement and how they're transforming energy systems uh, globally. Um, I think one of the most exciting programs is Apple, who have so far um, engaged 23 of their manufacturing partners uh, located in more than 10 countries um, to commit to producing um, Apple goods using 100% renewable energy, sorry, renew renewable electricity. Um, and this isn't just Apple asking them to do it, they're also supporting them. They've uh, they just launched a $300 million fund to um, to enable their Chinese supply chain to develop renewable electricity projects, projects to scale up their demand and, and really do this in a, a strong commercial way. This, uh, now, Apple aren't the only people doing this. Uh, we, we produced a report back in uh, 2017 called Going Beyond that brought together the experience of Apple, BT and IKEA, mm -hmm. who are all working to drive their supply chains towards renewable electricity. And this is really having an impact. I was in Taiwan uh, three months ago and Japan after that, and a number of companies, including some of our new members, are actually describing RE100 as their passport to international trade. 
They're seeing this as a real competitive factor that they can that they they've committed to and are buying renewable electricity and that they can demonstrate this to the companies that they're they're looking to sell to. So what other business models do you think could be helpful in bringing more mid-size and small companies or even maybe cities, right? I've seen more cities declaring this this uh, vision, if you will. But, you know, how do we get to a point where we're, we're pulling more, more organizations and communities into this movement? So the, uh, the RE100 um, program is, is focused primarily on um, large influential businesses because we see this as the, uh, the biggest opportunity for creating the market and building those market structures. Um, and we're seeing some quite mature markets in, in parts of Europe, such as the Scandinavian countries, the UK and Ireland, and many of the US states. And within those areas, um, both companies and utilities and the markets themselves are really starting to innovate ways of opening up um, supply to uh, to new organisations, to different size organisations. Um, one of those, uh, the models is aggregated power purchase agreements. So just to break this down for, uh, for the listeners, a power purchase agreement is a way of buying electricity uh, from a, a wind farm, a solar farm, etc., um, where you basically you agree a price over or a range of prices over a certain amount of time. You guarantee that you will buy electricity from that one supplier and that one facility. Um, now, traditionally, these have been engaged by you know, large players who have a, a, a long-term consistent energy demand. But what we're increasingly seeing is, is companies coming together so that that aggregated demand is big enough to get a great price. And so recently, Apple, um, Akamai, Etsy and Swiss Re grouped together to engage a, a PPA. And, uh, you know, on, while Apple have um, a long track record of engaging PPAs, Etsy and Swiss Re have much smaller demand. And, but that, uh, that collaborative effort allowed them to access a really great deal from uh, a renewable energy developer. So any other th final thoughts on, on where you're going to go next with the campaign? So the campaign is continuing to grow. Um, we're continuing to grow our influence through partnerships in uh, in Japan, in Taiwan, in South Korea, in Australia. The job of the RE100 campaign is really to change the conversation about renewable electricity, build that demand, but also in a very practical sense to open markets, to um, highlight to governments that um, – Renewable electricity isn't just a nice to have, it gives them a competitive edge. The prices of renewables, for example, of solar and wind have dropped by around 75% in the past seven to eight years. They're becoming cheaper than coal, they're becoming cheaper than fossil fuels. And governments that know the way the wind is blowing are starting to open their markets to allow investment from corporations into their renewable electricity systems. It's really about creating a future fit energy economy. And that's where RE100 comes in. We're really raising the profile of that. We're, we're bringing to bear the influence of those companies and the investment of those companies in creating change in national energy systems.
The annual Dreamforce event, hosted by cloud software giant Salesforce.com, is billed as the largest technology conference in the world. This year's gathering is coming soon. It's from September 25th to, to the 28th. The company has infused sustainability into the logistics of the event for several years with waste reduction and water conservation initiatives highlighted among them. This year, it is going even further by dedicating an entire day to its first ever climate summit. Here to chat about the motivation behind that decision and what's on the agenda is Sonia Ojur, Sustainability Director at Salesforce, where she leads sustainability communications, event greening, and stakeholder engagement initiatives. Sonia, welcome to podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Let's start by reflecting on the past week. Can you recap some of Salesforce's most impactful activities at the Global Climate Action Summit? Wow, it was a big week. Um, September is a huge month for Salesforce. As you noted, it's both Dreamforce Month and Global Climate Action Summit. Um, really wonderful momentum. And so when we were thinking about those two events, we wanted to make sure that they were tied together and that we built upon the Global Action Summit at Dreamforce. But last week, it was really special. Our co-CEO and chairman, Mark Benioff, was on stage and was announcing some great new initiatives here at Salesforce, basically the next chapter of sustainability at Salesforce. As you mentioned, it's been something that we've been working on since our founding. Um, one of the things that we're really excited about is an initiative that's been together with Mission 2020, Christiana Figueres' new organization. And essentially what that is, is in the spirit of the summit, having different businesses come together, up-level their commitments, go bolder, faster. We need action by 2020, of course. The world needs that. So we are really proud to be a part of that initiative. And that was part of what Mark Benioff announced on stage. Okay, so looking forward, uh, you have a, quite a big event coming in, in uh, late September, and you have made sustainability considerations part of Dreamforce for the past several years, as I mentioned earlier, um, with emissions reduction activities, waste reduction, etc. So what is planned for this year? Yeah, we see Dreamforce as a continuation of this great step-up declaration mission 2020 initiative. So in addition to the new initiatives that we announced, so for example, we'll be 100% renewable energy by 2022. And we also have some amazing new real estate announcements focused towards lead platinum certification, which is really, really exciting, um, working with our supply chain more. So along those lines, we wanted to make sure that our event operations match up with those really strong environmental values. It's been something that we've been working on for many, many years now, almost a decade. And what's so interesting about Dreamforce is it's this really large-scale event. So it's been called our Super Bowl, it's the largest software conference in the world now. So we, we take over downtown San Francisco, multiple venues, and we look at every part of the event. So we look at how we source our materials, we look at how we use our resources, we look at waste management, but a really key piece is making sure that the attendees at Dreamforce understand these values and experience them and are compelled to take action themselves. So that's really what the Dreamforce Climate Summit's about. It's about bringing the momentum from the Global Climate Summit 
to the stage of Dreamforce to a slightly different audience than the delegates at GCAS. How big of a, an, an education up curve is it for you at the event? I mean, does, is, do you find that, that the attendees are like excited to do things like compost or recycle? I mean, is it, is it something that they readily embrace? Are they used to it? Or is it a little bit unusual for them to consider doing this? What's so fun from an engagement opportunity perspective is attendees come to Dreamforce from all over the world. Numerous countries are represented. These are folks from every sector, every role. Uh, we have it's the largest nonprofit co- conference as well. So you could be a government employee, a business employee, a nonprofit employee. You could be a C-suite executive, or you could be a Salesforce administrator. So. We're reaching everyone, and they have very different levels of comfort, I would say. We observe folks who maybe come from the Bay Area who have a lot of comfort around basic things that we experience every day here in San Francisco that we're fortunate to have, like composting or recycling. But then, you know, you have a developer from India who has had a very different experience with their local infrastructure. So I think we see a lot of curiosity Attendees typically are ready for new experiences. That's what they know they'll get at Dreamforce is exposure to innovation. So, you know, one of the things that we've done for years now is have really um, eco-friendly food and beverage programs. So we expose them to 100% compostable lunch packaging. This year, we're removing beef from our attendee lunch, which is really incredible. And um, so we're doing a lot of messaging around that, helping folks understand the concept of embedded water and saving almost 10 million gallons of water through that amazing initiative. So at every turn, we, we look to communicate why we're doing what we're doing and give them an option to participate and support. So you're going one step farther this year with this climate summit. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the inspiration for that. And, you know, who do you, who do you hope is going to attend that? And who, what do you hope they're going to walk away with? Yeah, we're really excited for the climate summit. It'll be the third day of Dreamforce or Thursday, the 27th. And um, the day kicks off with Al Gore keynoting at 9am. So just an incredible thought leader who has had a really amazing impact on the sustainability team here and our our corporate strategy and and many others. Um, We're hoping that he sets the tone. He helps uh, explain to some folks who might not understand exactly where the world stands currently, the conversation at the Global Climate Action Summit, some of the science around it, but most importantly, the exciting things that we're seeing, the solutions coming out of um, all of these amazing global conversations, the technology that we see that's working, the renewable energy projects that we're seeing grow in scale and momentum. Um, so he's really going to set the stage for us. And then we have two more keynotes throughout the day, one focused on water and oceans and highlighting the importance of those ecosystems and access to water. And then finally, we'll close out with a more corporate-oriented climate action conversation showcasing some customer stories and um, that's actually that's going to be one of my favorite conversations I just know it because that's actually moderated by our CFO Mark Hawkins who has been a real sustainability champion here so I'm excited to hear him moderate that conversation I think what we hope that folks will get out of it is a new new kind of glance into some of these topics 
You know, we, we like to reframe topics here at Salesforce and at Dreamforce, present new thought leaders, some new conversations, get people focused on what they can do to take action. So every conversation will end with um, hopefully an inspiring conversation and a call to action of how you can get involved no matter who you are in the audience. So as I said earlier in the show, uh, this week one of the things I was doing is uh, at GCAS was uh, leading a session run by a group that uh, used to be called the Center for Carbon Removal, but as of this week is called uh, Carbon 180. And here talking to me is uh, in the middle of uh, this craziness is the executive director and co-founder of Carbon 180, Noah Deich. Uh, Noah, uh, first of all, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, Joel. Very excited to introduce the new brand here at the Global Climate Action Summit. So why a new brand? So it's really a new phase of the conversation on sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and really applying the circular economy, not just to all of the materials in our, our, our ecosystem, but to carbon as well. And what we're seeing is the conversation is, is moving to a phase where we're now starting to take action. And Carbon 180 was our way of rethinking how we communicate the urgency of, of action. And we can't just reduce emissions. We actually have to do a full 180 on carbon and start sequestering more than we emit. And the only way we believe we'll do that is by figuring out how to turn carbon back into value and make the economic case for climate action just undeniable. So value can mean a lot of different things. What does it mean for you in the, in the context of carbon removal? So for us, it's starting as a, a building block for manufacturing. How do we take carbon that's in the air, not carbon that's in the ground, and turn it into everything in our, our built environment? It's also in our agriculture and food. How do we adopt agricultural systems that don't deplete natural resources, but actually build soils and increase forests in such a way that farmers are better off and we're starting to, to solve the climate problem in parallel? So we had a bunch of companies in the room today. We had a food and ag company, we had an energy company, we had an apparel and footwear company, uh, a lot of others, uh, uh, a uh, uh, carpeting company. Uh, what did you learn today in terms of, of what it takes to move this forward? So what I learned is we're actually much farther along in recognizing that this is the future. This is the frontier of where corporate sustainability needs to be. And uh, the opportunity here both to find efficiencies is enormous, but also to innovate and find new business lines. The hard part is turning that into where do we start? That there are so many pieces on the technology innovation, the finance, even the human capital that need to all fall into place that companies are now just beginning to put those pieces together and figure out how to turn the promise into a reality. It's probably a huge, well, not probably, there is a huge communications and education component of this too. Uh, how do you get your arms around that? What, in terms of what businesses, forget the public for now, what businesses need to know about this opportunity that you're, uh, that you're talking about? So when we talk to businesses, the story is clear. The economic case for taking the two trillion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere is enormous. It's the world's largest gold mine and it's floating in our, our heads, or floating in the air right above our heads. So all we need to do is figure out the technologies, the business models, the innovative policies that enable us to go capture that resource and turn it back into economic value and productivity. And until companies figure out where to start on that journey, the resource will just, and the potential will just remain untapped. So do you, are you, this week, are you being optimistic about the potential here? 
I'm very optimistic. I know it's going to be a marathon and not a sprint, but the fact that the conversation has moved so far in the past few years and that the the state of action, we now have products that are carbon sequestering on the market and commercially viable today. We have pilots and other demonstration projects that show enormous potential for the future that within the next few years, I think the idea of a new carbon economy is just going to become the carbon economy of the future. And it's just where we will head as a sustainability and, and really a, an economic productive system that deals with climate change and also enables wealth creation and, and prosperity to grow. Well, a lot of that conversation is being led by you and a lot of that progress is being nudged forward by some of the work you're doing. So thank you for that. Noah Deitch is the co-founder and executive director of Carbon 180. Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Joel. So before we leave you this week, I wanted to offer a special discount code to our upcoming Verge conference in, in October in Oakland, California. Uh, a 10% discount code that's only available to listeners of this podcast. What you need to do is you go register, uh, sign up, and at one point there'll be a discount code. Use the discount code V as in Victor, as in Verge, V18POD. So it's V18POD as in podcast. You'll get 10% off, and um, that's a little something special for not only listening to this podcast, but sticking around till the end of the show. And that is the end of the show, our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out the link to our other podcasts, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director this week is Isaac Silk, filling in for the soon-to-be-married or maybe just recently married Stephanie Joyce. Congrats, Stephanie. Heather and I and Isaac will be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. 